0: you are tuned in to another episode of the avalanche hour podcast your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community i'm your host caleb merrill the avalanche hour podcast is proudly presented by vsan avalanche control safety through innovation additional support is provided by 10 barrel brewing the goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories Knowledge and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Today I'm excited to share a recording of a live episode that we recorded last week um, that highlighted a, a, a panel discussion with the authors and editor of the recently released volume of The Snowy Torrents. And The Snowy Torrents is a publication put out in conjunction with. The Colorado Avalanche Information Center and the American Avalanche Association. And it chronicles accidents, avalanche accidents in the United States. Um, So, a great resource for all of us. And we had a a great conversation. It was a really fun evening. Um, And so, some folks were able to jump on and join us in the live session and was able to watch the recording. And um, if you missed that, that's why we're releasing this now. So um, we hope that you enjoy this great discussion. It's a it, it can be a heavy topic, and I think that uh, our cadence of keeping it lively and and kind of bringing it a little bit deeper and darker uh, happens throughout the show. It's uh, it's it can be a difficult topic to talk about because many of these accidents did end in fatalities but not all of them and so um yeah i'm I'm excited to share this live recording and mostly uncut so i was unable to use my um eraser in this episode and we're just giving it to you live and uncut here so um we do hope that you enjoy this great discussion Additional support for the release of this podcast is provided by Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because I wanted a simplified routine that was sustainable to help with my health and nutrition. Um, I take AG1 every day. I mix it into some water, shake it up, and drink it down, and I'm done. And I know that AG1 has my back because it's packed with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. It helps me with my gut health. It helps me with focus, and it helps my immune system stay healthy through the busy winter season. And I should mention the folks over at Athletic Greens are continually re-evaluating the ingredients and recipe of AG1, and they're actually on their 52nd iteration. This isn't just a recipe that they set it and forget it. They're continually trying to improve it. So you know that with each batch of AG1 that you're getting, you're getting the latest and greatest recipe of AG1. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And without further ado, we're going to drop into our conversation with Blaze Reardon, Spencer Logan, and Emma Walker. All right. Welcome everybody to the first live show from the Avalanche Hour podcast. Thanks to everybody for making the time to come on and join us tonight. Um, We're very excited to be here. And I should first mention that this is really made possible through the support of the American Avalanche Association, the A3. And I'd like to thank the A3 for um, this opportunity to come on and talk to the authors and editor of the newly released Snowy Torrance uh, volume which is a publication of the American Avalanche Association um, and made possible in conjunction and a huge amount of support with from the CAIC, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Um, so the format of tonight's podcast is going to be um, somewhat guest-based. So we're going to talk about the the book. We're going to talk about some of the events in the book, how to use the book to really help us manage our risk in the backcountry, and then we're going to open it up to audience questions. So um, as you are listening to the podcast, to the webinar tonight, if you have questions, you can just go ahead and throw them in the chat. Um, we'll have the, the chat open and be, be monitoring that, and uh, we'll work those questions into this great uh, feature presentation this afternoon, this evening. Um, so I've, I've kind of been thinking about this, this event and what it means to recount avalanche accidents, um, and how we can use those accidents. And, and I've just compiled some thoughts here. Um, I guess to start out with, I'm, I'm continually amazed by the Snow and Avalanche community, how we are a diverse collective of people stretching across, glo- across the globe from different regions with characteristically different mountain geographies, snowpacks, and recreation opportunities. It's amazing how we learn from each other across space and time, with or without knowing each other. This collective of experience, knowledge, and wisdom never ceases to amaze me and I'm continually impressed how we're able to learn from and build upon the work, research, protocols, and sometimes unfortunate events of others. As we learn, progress, and the spiral ascends, we keep in the forefront of our minds the uncertainties that exist and the goal of staying safe while having fun in the places where we are our best selves. So this volume of Snowy Torrents, recounts avalanche accidents in the United States from 1986 to 1996. And through that time, since that time, there are many things that have changed, right? The the way that we access, communicate, and share information has changed drastically. The effectiveness of avalanche education and outreach has grown drastically. The gear we use has improved and allowed us to access um places that we weren't able to access in the past and we can get there faster and with less effort our ability to preview and anticipate the terrain we're stepping into has gotten almost too easy right we can it's it's amazing how we can access and preview that terrain on some of today's mapping software um Perhaps one thing that hasn't changed, though, is, the, is really the call of the sirens to a deep and steep face, and that addictive feeling of a deep powder turn on your boards or on your machine, the solace of snowshoeing through a silent valley surrounded by giant peaks, or the grounding effect we find while climbing frozen ice. Really, we're all striving to be better at managing our risk in the mountains and within avalanche terrain. However, people are still going to continue to get caught in avalanches. It's it's kind of uh, unsettling, but true fact. What we do with these experiences and these accidents and these near misses, both our own and those of our community, really help us to manage our risk. We must be vulnerable and empathetic when talking about our own mistakes and the mistakes of others. It's really easy to flip through the pages of this book and kind of sit down and, and read these and have the benefit of hindsight and say, you know, I would never make that mistake. However, I find myself flipping through these pages and and many of these accidents and, and events, I can, I can see myself being right in that same situation, um, hoping that I would maybe make a different decision to have a better outcome, but I'm not always sure. So utilizing empathy while learning from others' experiences is kind of a theme that we're going to carry throughout this evening. Um, And I challenge you as you read through the accounts within the Snowy Torrents to do the same. Put yourself in the shoes of those people that were in the the mountains that day. And um, I think there's a lot to learn from within these pages. So I'd like to introduce our guests tonight. Um, first up, we've got Emma Walker. Hey, Emma, how you doing?
1: Hi, great, thank you.
0: Thanks for being here. Emma is joining us from Anchorage, Alaska, where they've had quite a bit of snow in the last week or so. Um, she she lives there, she plays there, and she works there with her husband and her dog. She's the editor of this volume of the Snowy Torrents. She holds a master's degree from. Alaska Pacific University, where she completed her thesis research on decision making, um, decision making dynamics among Denali guides. Emma is the current curriculum manager for ARI, where she works to refine recreational curriculum, online learning content, and extend the support for instructor training and continuing education. Emma is a talented author whose work has been published in outside and powder magazines and she embraces the theme of learning from our accidents and has another recently published book Dead Reckoning Learning from Accidents in the Outdoors. I I haven't picked that one up yet Emma but I look forward to it. So thanks for, thanks for being here tonight.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me Caleb.
0: Next up we've got Spencer Logan. Hey Spencer, how are you doing? Great Caleb. Spencer's worked for the Colorado Avalanche Information Center since 2004, where he's a lead avalanche specialist. You might say that avalanche accidents are always on his mind. He has the job of maintaining the CAIC's nationwide accident database. He's collaborated with professionals across the globe to better understand trends and patterns in avalanche accidents and occurrences. This is the second volume of the Snowy Torrents that Spencer has co-authored. And last but not least, we have Blaze Reardon. Welcome, Blaze. Blaze has worked as an avalanche forecaster for quite some time. He's gathered experiences forecasting for the Going to the Sun Road in Glacier National Park. He's worked as a public forecaster at the Sawtooth Avalanche Center, the CAIC, and now lives in Montana's Flathead Valley, where he's the director of the Flathead Avalanche Center. Blaze has also been a faculty member of Colorado Mountain College's Avalanche Science Program and has served as the editor of the Avalanche Review and previous Snowy Torrance volumes. Welcome, everybody. So to start off our conversation this evening, I'd like to kind of continue on that theme of, of framing the mindset, framing the mindset of fostering a culture of learning from our collective experiences as a community. Um Blaze, I guess I'd like to start out with you and I was hoping you could speak about how we talk about and process avalanche accidents as a community. And so thinking back on your career, talk about how maybe we've evolved in the way that we've talked about and processed these accidents. Sure. I was
2: uh in Salt Lake city working and uh I kind of was my first introduction to the avalanche world and I had a lot of mentors and experienced people I look up to and there was one particular accident it wasn't the first one I remember but one particular accident it's in the book um April 1st 1992 and I, a skier was uh killed on the northeast face of uh, American Fork Twins uh, skiing a very steep line, uh, and released a slab on old snow. And what I remember about that was that the judgment was pretty harsh, um, from, though it didn't necessarily seem like it at the time from the people in the community about how the person had no business being there. Um, it should only be experts that talk about, or that go into that terrain. They should only go in when it's frozen. And I wrote up that accident for this report and I was struck by, or for this volume of snowy torrents. And I was struck by both those memories and then also the similarities to the kind of terrain and activity that are skied or snowboarded on a daily basis. Now, um, this rider was trying to make a ski movie, had his friends filming. Um, they'd been working on it all year. They'd previewed the line, um, it's really not that different than what we do, what people do in the backcountry all the time, whether it's snow machines or not and, um, or skis. And I just remember as I reread all those notes and talked to, uh, one of the first responders who was an old friend and mentor of mine and realizing, I guess it really struck me how harsh that initial judgment was and how we would all do well to step back and, um, Be aware that our perspective on these accidents will change um, over time and that what seems, what we can instantly rush to judgment on may not seem in hindsight quite that simple. And I think that's one of the things I've tried to bring to writing about these accidents in snowy torrents and what I try to bring when I'm interviewing survivors or witnesses to accidents um, is part of my job.
0: Yeah, and I, I think some of that trend has continued today. You know, there's always going to be some a, a plethora of opinions on the internet following an unfortunate accident, um, but but I think it has has gotten a bit better, and we have have more positive spin on on kind of looking at some of these accidents. Would you Would you agree?
2: Yeah, I think there's more of a push with both. Um, The professional culture being more willing to talk about um, near misses of our own. Um, And there's a really good example of that right now um, in the community. Um, And um, also, I think just that general sense that what we understand about decision making now is that it's not that you give people X And why pieces of information, and they will automatically make a good decision. And if they don't, that they're somehow failures. Um, And I think we understand now, and this is not just part of the avalanche world, it's a general change in how our culture understands decision making as a result of a lot of research that was done in um, uh, behavioral economics. But we understand that we're basically irrational. And so it makes it a lot easier to look at people and think, yeah, I could have done that one day. Um, I could do that one day. And I think we're not there yet. I still see a lot of uh, harsh judgments online when people talk about accidents. Maybe that's just what um, online culture fosters. But um, I think we're getting better about it. Sure. Sure.
0: So, Spencer, I was hoping you could provide some context to what the CAIC avalanche accident database is, um, how long it's been in existence, and how it's maintained, what information is locked within
3: those vaults. (laughs) Uh, I wish it was as exciting as vaults, but it's just a couple filing cabinets in an office. Um, But the start of it really goes back to 1967. And that's when the U.S. Forest Service, Rocky Mountain Forest and Range Experiment Station started the Westwide Avalanche Network. And the Westwide Network was kind of a central gathering place for weather records, avalanche occurrence, and accident data. Um, They ended up with about 50 stations throughout the western U.S. that were reporting this information. Uh, The Forest and Range Experiment Station collated it produced uh, quite a bit of information from it. And the CAIC took it over in the 80s when they were cut from the Forest Service. So they sort of took the data and maintained the Westwide network for another 10 years into the 90s, um, primarily because nobody else at the time had the resources to do so. Uh, And as the Westwide faded in the 90s, folks like Knox Williams and Dale Atkins really maintained the... They had the passion to find the resources to maintain all the accident collection. So they were tracking accidents throughout the U.S. and built it into a really impressive collection. Um, Several volumes of snowy torrents and lots of research came out of it. In the early aughts, I took over data management at the CAIC. And I don't have the passion for avalanche rescue that Dale does but I care a lot about data quality. So over the years, we've worked really hard to maintain good records on fatal avalanche accidents in the US. And right now, the CAIC acts as kind of the central archive for those fatal accidents. So we're collecting all that information. Um, it goes into Manila folders in a filing cabinet or files on our hard drives. and That information is both provided back to the public and all the avalanche reports, as well as available to researchers who are doing things like snowy torrents or looking at other things.
0: All right. Thanks, Spencer, for giving us a glimpse into that. Yeah, Um, I'd I'd like to um, note that while we think it's kind of obvious
2: now that we should collect information on avalanches and know how many people a year are killed in accidents and, um, have case studies that we can look at. That's not always been the case. And if it weren't for Knox and Dale's vision, we would have decades of lost information or gaps, and we just wouldn't think of it the same way. And, um, it's just one of those things that we take as a given now that was the result of some individual passions and um, perceptions.
0: Yeah. Quite a bit of forethought there. Emma, I was hoping you could talk about the history and evolution of the snowy torrents. How does this volume fit into the bigger picture?
1: Yeah, definitely. So It's funny. It's so exciting to us that this volume is finally in print in the world and that people can pick it up and flip through it. Um, It's it's really exciting and it's a really long time coming. This particular volume was in progress for almost six years from the um, from the time we first started compiling reports until it finally is hitting the proverbial shelves this fall, Um, but actually it's been in progress for a lot longer than that, um, almost 20 years. So uh, I'll start at the very beginning though. The first volume of The Snowy Torrents came out in 1967 um, and that was authored by Dale Gallagher and it covered a, a really huge range of years. It started in 1910 and covered accidents up until 1966. So Dale had his work cut out for him. Um, And then in 1975, Knox Williams authored the second volume, which covered accidents from 1967 to 1971. Um, And then they were kind of cranking him out for a while there. So Knox got together with Betsy Armstrong in 1984 and published the third volume, which covered 1972 to 79. And then uh, Dale Atkins, who Blaze mentioned a few minutes ago, in 1996 um, collaborated with Nick Logan to come out with a, a volume that covered 1980 to 86. And then uh, and then things got a little off the rails there. So as things often do with projects that that last this long, um, there started to be, you know, as you go farther back in history, there is often less information available, and so. We, um, The next volume that came out was uh, 20 years later in 2016. Spencer and Knox Williams authored a volume that covered 96 to 2006. So there was that 10-year gap. Um, and then finally, another six years later, Spencer and Blaze um, have authored this volume, which, as we know, covers eighty-six to ninety-six. That missing ten-year gap. Um, so we did it a little out of order for the last couple of uh, for the last couple of volumes. But uh, I think I think the the big thing that has really come out of this that we've talked about a lot is that our authors are really only as good as their sources. And so um, for this volume, there was kind of the additional challenge of that. The accidents that Blaze and Spencer were writing about, uh, many of them happened over thirty years ago, and so not only did they have to go back through, um, even well before Spencer started being the data manager so he can't it's not even Spencer's fault anything that we can't find we can't even blame it on Spencer so um, a lot of times that meant going back and talking to to old friends and colleagues and peers who investigated the original accents and even um, like looking at like looking at old newspaper articles that came out at the time and so there was a lot of primary and secondary sources and really, it was a bear to do a lot of this research. And so I swooped in after these authors had already done a lot of the the really tough part, the research and asked a lot of questions that I think sometimes they didn't love that I was asking because it meant having to go back to those sources or um, ask a lot more questions. So these authors really, really had their work cut out for them and did a lot of hard work to understand a lot of what happened. And and again, it's it's really often only as good as their sources. So sometimes there was a lot of information missing or not available, and so that meant that we had to say um, say that there was no source or uh, data available when maybe somewhere floating around out there there is, but it hasn't been made available to us. So I think we'll talk a little bit more later about um, how folks can remedy that for future volumes, but. We learned a lot as we were working on this volume, and um, I think have really started to dial in our systems. Um, I feel really lucky to work with these authors, and they're they're in good company. It's a pretty star studded list of authors in the Snow Geek realm. Um, these folks that have authored previous volumes, so Blaze and Spencer are in excellent company.
0: Spencer, or Blaze, uh, care to share like a unique encounter? It was, this is kind of an off-the-cuff question here, but any unique encounters while um, kind of sniffing out those sources for any of these accidents?
3: I think Emma is being uh, uh, a little modest when she talks about her role. You know, we know that cat. a lot of cats don't like snow, and you know they do the kind of walk. So Emma, when she came in, she was really hurting cats with Blaze and I. Um, and it was good to have those questions and be able to call up friends and ask them to think back to you know events that are 30 years old. And for a lot of them, were fairly early in their careers. So um, pretty momentous things. Um, and we spent a lot of time researching dogs um so it was kind of fun to call up old friends and ask them about the dogs or if they remembered i mean in one case the victim's dog stayed on the scene and Emma wanted to know what kind of dog it was that stayed on the scene for 36 plus hours so got to call friends and see if anybody remembered and Track that story down.
1: I think we should all be so lucky as to have a dog who sticks around for 36 hours after we're <laughs> caught in an avalanche. I don't remember what kind of dog it was now that you say it though, Spencer. Uh,
3: I think it was a black and white, uh, sheep dog, but I'd have to flip back through. Yeah.
1: That tracks. I like that.
3: <laughs> Loyal breed there.
2: Um, I think, I think for me, there were a lot of like lighthearted or humorous things like the sticky note from Knox Williams on this newspaper photograph of the newspaper clipping. It's a photograph for me because Spencer actually has the clipping. Um, and that's how I got my records. Um, and it says, this is the worst explanation of an avalanche I have ever read and it is bad. And so some of that was pretty lighthearted at the same time. Some of it is also, um, was pretty sad and heavy. There's a lot of names in here that I know, and there's a lot of people in this volume that I know personally, and also with the volume we published right before this. And so it was interesting to take a little bit more of a step back perspective on some of that, but it was also, um, hard
0: hit home. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I didn't necessarily expect when I first started working on this project with the previous volume what a what an emotional toll it would take to work on a volume like this. I mean, the three of us collectively have now read and written about and then reread and then reread again hundreds and hundreds of accidents. And it's hard to read the same some of the same stuff over and over again. And I think having the additional layer, you know, for, for Blaze with this volume of knowing a lot of those folks personally. And I think, you know, all three of us also are really well acquainted with some of the folks who investigated many of those accidents and know what a toll it took on them. And so just thinking about when I think about how long this volume took, I think, you know, maybe it's good that we gave ourselves some little breaks in there because it really is, it's really heavy stuff to process. And, I think in order to have any kind of meaningful message come out of it, we really needed to take some of those breaks and step back and then come back to it with a, a slightly fresher set of eyes. Yeah. So I think having that, uh, having that perspective now that we've had some time to look back at this project has been really remarkable. And I think has, I think, you know, the three of us have had this conversation a few times, but it really took a bigger toll than I think certainly than I expected um, over the last, I guess now almost 10 years. Mm.
0: And, and we should add that I, I think it might be a misconception um, that every event in this book ended in a fatality, right? Like there are some positive outcomes from some of these accounts that are serious accidents, but, you know, uh, didn't end in fatality. So yes, it is, a, it's certainly a, a heavy toll. And, and as you read through many of these accidents, it, it hits home as to the ripple effect that avalanche accidents have um, within and beyond our community, right. That can last for generations really. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, the best way to use this book and, and how it's kind of set up. So, um, Spencer, maybe you could talk about some of the useful features that are included in this volume, um, such as the season summaries, the margin callouts, um, and kind of describe how to use that.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, the stories and the accounts are the heart of the book. That's, that's what makes it so powerful but putting those accounts into a common format makes it much easier for us as readers to go through and pick out similarities and then as authors our job was not only to write them up but to help highlight some of those similarities those differences and put things into context so one of the things that we did with this volume was add a season summary So at the beginning of each chapter, there's a fairly short description of what went on that year, but not just numbers, but how that fits in with the rest of the volume and then the subsequent years. You know, this volume of Snowy Torrent spans some pretty important uh, or a period of very interesting change within the avalanche community and the avalanche accidents. So being able to frame that and provide that context uh, is really important. Um, And we've done that in the season summaries, but each of those accounts has a comment section. So that's where we can highlight uh, either trends or similarities with other accidents or what really struck out. So those two spots allow us as authors to add context and help Readers kind of put these things into a bigger picture. The common format then makes it easier for you as a reader to go through and, you know, each section or each accident has a site description, details on the weather, snowpack, avalanche and rescue narratives, and avalanche data. So as you're flipping through, you can. Pick accidents in an area you're familiar with, or look at the accidents that occurred in June and be able to quickly compare across those. And then within each of those accounts, like you said, Caleb, we have marginal callouts. And these are common factors that we noticed as we went through. Um, there are things like traveling alone or not having adequate rescue gear, or choosing to travel in avalanche terrain during high danger. And these give the reader a quick way of going through and pulling out a bunch of accidents that have those similar patterns.
0: Themes that we continue to see in avalanche accidents, not just themes that were current in 86 to 96, right? Yes. These are things that still get us in trouble out there, right? All of us. Yes. All right. Well, let's uh let's get into actually before we get into maybe a first account um by one of you uh, of of a highlighted accident here. Couple questions from from Jack at Breckenridge. I think this is Jack Rupel. Good to see you, Jack. Glad you could be here. Jack's wondering if if the snowy torrents will ever be released um on a kindle in a kindle format and he also wants to know if he can see the filing cabinets, spencer
3: uh the filing cabinets are in a federal building so uh, currently we cannot give tours Um, but when we can everybody is very underwhelmed when they see the caac office
1: (laughs) i think also the it's more it's a somewhat of a proverbial filing cabinet as I understand it, so if you were to visualize all these sources, they would fill several filing cabinets. but having personally seen the authors hand off files and newspaper clippings to one another, I can say that um, we're gilding the lily a little bit to say that they're all like neatly stacked in one place you
3: know it's a government beige uh, four drawer filing cabinet. <laughs>
0: Okay, how about the Kindle question?
1: I don't know like that. that any of us can answer that necessarily, but we can certainly pass it along to Janie Nolan, the executive director of A3, and let her know that um, at least one person and probably others are interested in viewing the, in viewing the Snowy Torrents in Kindle format.
2: I, didn't we have an effort to make the previous volume digital at one point that sort of went moribund?
1: I think <laughs> we, we did.
2: Were tired and we wanted to work on this volume.
1: I think that was part of it, definitely. Yeah. And I think um, there is, it is definitely something that we've talked about in the past. One thing I will say, and I do understand the appeal of having it in Kindle format, but um, one thing that I think and maybe this is a bit of about how to use the book that kind of this makes me think of is that there is something really interesting about sort of flipping back and forth through the book i think that we even say in the how to use the how to use this book section that we kind of doubt anyone is going to pick it up and read it from cover to cover we more assume that people are going to maybe pick it up and look at a season where they remember that there was a particularly high snowfall in their region, right? Or um, or an area, maybe you flip through and look at all of the accidents that happened in your neck of the woods if you're living in the Wasatch or um, here in South Central Alaska. I think we we tend to assume that people are going to use this more as a, a reference volume, um, but certainly interested in that feedback too. It would be great to understand how folks are using it so we can organize future volumes in that in a way that is really useful to people.
0: Well, let's, let's highlight some of these incidents. Um, blaze, I was, I was curious if you wanted to start and kind of recount recount one that spoke to you personally or, or that you had a thought that had a, had a great impact.
2: Yeah, there were a number of them. Like I was just looking through the volume before this started and, I think a lot of them I looked at and I just sort of had a sinking feeling and I didn't really want to talk about them as something that stood out. But, um, the one, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but then I come back to the very first incident in this book, which I got to write up and it involves two guys who, uh, decide to make an October ski of Fletcher peak in the 10 mile range in Colorado this was actually previously done in a previous version of snowy torrents and got the peak wrong. Um, so they're hiking up the gully. One of them's a little older. The younger one decides that he's going to go up this steep gully, which the new snow is sitting on old seasonal snow and then cross it. And the older one's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and the younger skier gets avalanche down the chute, um, gets a concussion um loses his glasses, which means he's effectively blind, and um, gets kind of beat up and they they walk back to the trailhead. And in some ways, it's a pretty unremarkable near miss. It's the kind of thing that happens a lot every season. Um, except for me personally, um, both of those guys wound up moving to whitefish, and one of them became, Uh, my go-to he moved there I moved there right after one of them and he became my go-to skiing and climbing partner um, for several decades here and um, I was comfortable doing things with him you know new routes in Glacier Park and he went on to ski make early descents of some of the big ski lines here and I think what struck me was how Conscious he was of avalanche danger for the rest of his life, um, he's still around. He's actually moved to Florida, but um, in the last year. But um, I think what's really interesting is that it was he was so conscious of avalanche hazard and made all his decisions primarily on that, and that enabled him to have a long career in the mountains doing, it it wasn't like choosing between meadow skipping and um, taking risks. He, you know, understood he needed to make that his first thing. And so he went on to have a long career doing really interesting things in the mountains, but was never caught in another avalanche has never been caught in another avalanche since. And I think what I like about that, apart from the personal connection um, and knowing how, it doesn't come across in the volume, I think, but how seriously he took the hazard is that we can learn from these mistakes. And I like that. That's the very first story in this volume and 30 something years later, you know, he's still one of my primary skiing and climbing partners in part because I trust him to make good avalanche decisions. And so I think that in some ways is my favorite story from the book. Mm-hmm. of not necessarily the most impactful in some ways because some of them are pretty hard, but um, I think that's my favorite story from the book.
1: I think Blaze is being a little modest and saying that that doesn't come through in the volume so much. In fact, one of the things I love about working with these two is that they really humanize the folks that we're talking about in this, in this book. And um, Blaze has this really, this really humanizing way of writing about people. And in the comment section for this accident, I of course have my volume in front of me and I'm following along about, um, what everyone else is talking about. But, um, at the very end, um, he writes that, um, that this, this particular person has continued to ski every winter in the subsequent three decades without another near miss, confirming the adage that good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And I think that's the sort of thing that um, it's nice to see that really articulated. Like Blaze has really gone ahead and explained why this is important to us. And so I think that kind of thing does really does really come through in the volume. And having folks with this with the amount of experience that Blaze and Spencer have um, is really an, an awesome lens to look at some of these experiences and accidents through and really gives us uh, an additional layer of knowledge sorry, I'm trying to speak up. I'm so rarely told that I'm not loud enough. I don't know that that's actually ever happened to me before tonight. So I'm really going to lean into the mic so you can all hear me.
0: Thanks, Emma. So um, in, in kind of continuing to talk about some of these trends and themes, um, Spencer, do you have any stats on on sort of how many people or what percentage of the victims were alone? Throughout this decade, um,
3: traveling alone was one of the factors that we did pull out in the marginal callouts. And I do want to stress that these are these callouts are not a rigorous statistical analysis of the accidents. It is incredibly challenging and really requires an intensive amount of effort and extensive. Uh, sources to be able to go back and really do a good analysis on somebody's decision making. So these callouts are the patterns and uh, commonalities that we saw. But traveling alone was a big factor, uh, and about thirteen percent of our accidents, the uh, traveling alone or being separated from your group was a pretty important factor in the outcome of the accident. Yeah, and that's a huge focus
0: within avalanche education and outreach. That's a that's a huge factor that's covered there. Would you just kind of attribute that fairly high percentage during this decade to the, to the lack of education?
3: It uh, some of that is. I mean, this is this volume kind of spans uh, the period where. Avalanche education was becoming much more common and available for backcountry skiers. Um, but the it also spans the period where snow machines became more powerful and more people were riding. So we start seeing a lot more snowmobilers involved in avalanches towards the end of the volume. But they don't have... Uh, the avalanche education for that group was lagging behind and it took them... A while. So I think some of that is um, changing education, changing use patterns, but it's also could be really easy to get separated from your group. You know, if you're firing around on a machine, you know, think of how many times that you're not within sight of your partners. Um, If you're skiing, you know, it's pretty easy to get separated in a snowstorm or in the dense trees and lose track of where people are. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who just choose to go out by themselves. There's
0: value in that as well for a lot of people. So, um, I, I was kind of surprised, not surprised, but it's, it's pretty sobering to see how many small avalanches involved solo skiers that if they had a partner, um, it probably would have had a different outcome. I think that was, one theme that I, one theme and trend that I picked up on, uh, looking through some of these accidents.
3: Yeah, and that's really something that we saw within this volume. You know, people are effectively alone, and then they're getting caught in either small avalanches or even worse, small avalanches into terrain traps. And you know, if they'd had a partner, if they'd had rescue gear, they might have had a very different outcome. Mm. Spencer, could you recount
0: a, a event that kind of spoke to you that you'd like to highlight tonight?
3: Yeah. Um, like Emma was talking about, um, having a physical volume to flip through can be really useful. So for those of you listening on the podcast, my volume has, uh, I've now got three different colors of sticky notes and 10 or 15 different sticky notes, just highlighting patterns throughout. Um, but Thinking about tonight, um, one that really stuck out to me is November 25th, 1989, near Tony Grove Lake in northern Utah. And that was early season. It was a solo skier who didn't have a lot of avalanche awareness. Uh, The skier probably triggered a relatively small avalanche from below and was knocked over and buried. And they didn't find his body for six months. And thinking about kind of the themes in the book and this accident, um, it fits in nicely with that. But this is also, you know, a couple of years later where I was learning to backcountry ski. And, you know, I know that slope really well. And the people who were involved in the search, who found the body, who did the investigation, were my mentors. So this was, um, you know, it fits nicely with our themes, but this is something that they didn't talk about in detail, but avalanches and av- avalanche awareness was something that was very important uh, in their mentorship and something that I was really fortunate to have uh, ingrained in me from very early on in my career.
0: hmm so Emma, I was hoping you could highlight uh, maybe a, a little lighter of a event. Uh, I would um, love to. Yes, thank you. Light, um, lighten it up a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and and I do I do want to say I think the um, one thing that is really tough but really impactful about this volume is that there are there are a lot of really sad moments. I mean, I going through this volume, um, I definitely had some, there's definitely a few that really, for whatever, for one reason or another, struck me, um, really hit close to home, whether it was because the person really reminded me of someone I knew or myself or because I pictured the way my friends and family would feel if something happened to me. Um, and And consequently, I'm I'm often told that I'm not that much fun to ski with because of my encyclopedic knowledge of avalanche accidents. So almost anywhere that I like to ski, um, I can easily point out a slope where someone has been involved in an avalanche incident. So I'm going to skip over all of those. Um, Hopefully my ski partners will appreciate that. Um, And instead, we'll go with probably my my favorite incident from this volume, which is the first live find by a search dog. Um, and blazes maybe rolling his eyes at me a little bit because I was really focused on this incident. Um, so this is one that took place, um, just South of Jackson hole. What's now ja- Jackson hole mountain resort. Um, and this person was, um, I, I won't go into all of the details, but this person was in the end found alive, uh, by a black lab named Coop. Um, thanks, Coop. And uh he did get lucky. I think, you know, it's it's not just that Coop was super fast and wonderful, although I'm sure he was. Um, but this person was able to create an airspace for himself. He took off his watch and used it to kind of scrape out an airspace for himself. And then there were some cracks in the debris, and maybe he was a little stinky, so um was able to this dog was able to find him. Um and he was very much alive when he was found. Um, Blaze, I'll let you. D- I'll let you tell everyone what happened next because I can't bear to say it aloud.
0: Gee, thanks, Emma. Um, <laughs> Coop wasn't quite so lucky.
1: Poor Coop. Coop
2: was. Um, I think I used the adage "No good deed goes unpunished." Um, in the write-up, Coop was trampled by a moose the next season, and um, so. Yeah, Uh, when Emma starts talking about this, all I can think of is poor Coop and I,
1: yeah. Poor Coop, but we appreciate his good deed. and, um, And also in case anyone's interested, a slight sidebar for the A3, we do now have an avalanche search and rescue dog memorial page on the A3 website. So if you are interested in learning more about some of these wonderful heroes, Coop included, you can learn more about them on the A3 website, um, and I've spent a lot of time there looking at cute pictures of nice search and rescue dogs. See, we made it nice again, Blaze.
0: <laughs> okay, so I I've got a event that I was hoping whoever wrote about this event could could kind of give us a, a highlight of it. It it is a pretty sobering event um, that that didn't end up so well but this is on february 12th 1992 the talking mount mountain cirque um in the lasalle mountains of of utah um so on february 12th six backcountry skiers were caught and carried two bar- partially buried critical four completely buried and killed pretty high profile event um involving an avalanche forecaster and kind of some interesting uh weather factors leading that up leading up to to that event as well um just with incremental loading on a on a weak layer within the snowpack
2: yeah i wrote that one up um i think there's a lot i think that's a really important accident for a lot of reasons um it is a classic case of a persistent slab and incremental loading and um, not very reliable feedback until uh, basically everything falls apart. Uh, the accident involved a group of six, and um, including the local avalanche forecaster. And they just kept pushing the train just a little bit higher. And um, they were in pretty low angle terrain. Um, And then they were all buried. This is another one I actually remember from when it happened and the impact on um, people, my mentors at the time, because this involved their friends. This involved people that had been students in their avalanche classes, and they had to go down and um, find the bodies of the four people who were killed um the people who were survived actually could hear the other people under the snow but were not able to get them this is really kind of hard to talk about actually um and uh it was an incredibly tragic accident in a lot of ways um and it had a lot of personal impacts on everybody here um And everybody, a lot of people in the profession, it also, um, I think the best word is accelerated the development of what at the time was a center of excellence for avalanches in Salt Lake that was run by Doug Abramite, um, who was a winter sports manager and snow ranger in the Cottonwood Canyons. And he had the vision that all of these avalanche centers that were doing their own thing. And then reading about things months later in Westwide, um, could benefit from some common um, uh, standards or direction. And and this accident basically spurred the development of the National Avalanche Center, which Doug headed. Um, it had a lot of other effects as well. Um, a forecaster from Salt Lake who was remarkable um, in his ability to communicate and develop ideas um, left the field um, because he... And there's an interview and some quotes from him. I talked to him for this accident and he has some really trenchant advice for people um, even, you know, well, 30 years later, Um, he's still an adventurer, but um, he definitely took a step back. And so I think this was a really important accident for a lot of the people involved for the whole community. And then also it basically spurred the development Um, and unification of what we see as the avalanche forecast center system in the United States right now. So,
0: Hmm.
2: um, yeah, it was hard to talk to some of the folks involved in that one because it's been 30 years, but there's still a lot of, uh, a lot of feelings about that one. It's hard for me to talk about actually.
3: And it's a, you know, it's an important accident because of these intense feelings and the way that it then rippled out through the industry, but it was also shocking because it was the first avalanche fatality in Utah in five years. So there had been a period without avalanche accidents and suddenly this, this hugely impactful one. And that February, uh, there was about a month with nine fatal accidents across the western U.S. So it was just accident after accident after accident. So not only was this a a really impactful individual event, but in kind of the cumulative effect, um, I think made it even more, not necessarily shocking, but increased that personal effect the way it rippled out.
2: Yeah, and I, th- I think Spencer and I have talked about this too. Like You can look at the graphs that Spencer puts together every year and the nick point, the threshold, the birth of the avalanche era that we all live in was 1992. Um, that's when avalanche accidents spiked to levels that um, we see almost every year. Um, that's the year the accident involving Coop and the person the live find was found. That's the year the first accident I talked about, the skier who was kind of ahead of his time. Um, and judged for it happened. And that's also the year that uh, the Red Mountain Pass um, accident happened, which killed a highway worker and led to the development um, or the institutionalization of the CIC by the state of Colorado and the highway forecasting program. There's been one avalanche fatality on an, on a highway um, since that. If, I think I'm right on that, right? Spencer, it's the one in New York and, um, one avalanche fatality on a uh, open highway since that um, uh, accident at Red Mountain Pass and that safety that we all come to take for granted um, and sometimes look at as a nuisance driving to the ski area on a powder day or wherever is a direct result of the 1992 accident, in which Eddie Amol was killed.
0: And that that's not one to miss when going through the book, the, the East Riverside avalanche there um it's it's a pretty gripping tale from a pretty intense storm cycle um let's go to a a couple audience questions here so we got chris lundy on the line chris thanks for dropping by this evening chris's comment and question is the trend of empathetic and non-judgmental attitudes towards accidents is a step in the right direction it's had me wondering if there's still a place for constructive criticism in accidents, whether in official reports or talking to friends that have had close calls. If so, any thoughts on effective ways to communicate constructive criticism? It's a great comment and great question, Chris. Um, and and I think it's an important topic to to talk about. Emma, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Thank you, Chris. That's really... That's a really thoughtful question and one that I'm glad to hear Avalanche Professionals asking. You know, I think, I absolutely think that there's a place for constructive feedback. I mean, that's how we learn and grow, right? So as educators, um, we're thinking of ways to communicate effectively with our students and meet our students where they're at. Um, I think, gosh, this is going to sound so simple, but I really think a lot of it is letting letting folks know that we're coming from a place of empathy and non-judgmental attitudes. You know, I really think that I think that just articulating like saying explicitly, I can see myself in this situation or it it could have been me. It could have been me 10 years ago or even it could have been me earlier this season. I think being really honest with ourselves about how close we've come um you know we work in this wicked environment so we don't always necessarily get feedback right away but but we've all been probably a lot closer than we think and i think saying that out loud as a way to frame the feedback that we're giving really goes a long way i mean certainly i feel more ready to receive feedback when the person giving it to me lets me know that they can empathize with me and and i think you know certainly when someone's been killed um i think there's Probably a a more gentle way to frame that, um, and probably timing goes into it as well, right? So, if we think about good feedback being timely, um, right after something has happened, probably isn't necessarily the time to be to be delivering really harsh constructive criticism. And because two things can be true, um, you know, I think that probably whatever that constructive feedback is is really important, especially if someone has been killed. And so, I think that. Um, Coming from that empathetic place and thinking about the timing and thinking about our audience when we're delivering that kind of feedback is really crucial. Um, I know it sounds so simple, but I think a lot of it really is just letting people know where we are and using good communication, um, using really empathetic communication to get our point across.
2: I think that's part of it. Um, I think this is a really interesting question. Um, I have to note here for the audience that one of the two times I've been caught in avalanche, moving avalanche debris was with Chris um, while we were working. Um, And that's, there's a lot to debrief there. Um, It was mostly my drive. Um, And I think, so I want to, say this based on just acknowledging that and understanding, you know, people understanding that I have been in that place literally um, with the person asking the question. And I think one of the things I've learned is that sometimes the best way to address this is just to ask the hard questions and let the person answer them for themselves and not ask them in a kind of leading or judgmental way, but just like, The hard questions. Did you notice this? I had to actually do this with a young um, professional here this week who reported a near miss. And I asked him a couple hard questions um, about his role in the group. Um, But I didn't know the answers. And I think you have to ask the questions from a place of not expecting an answer and true curiosity and, and giving people the space to answer the questions themselves. Because even in that incident, I mentioned at the start of what of this answer, I could have um, had a lot of answers um, that would have been good for me um, to speak out loud. So um, I think that's one way, just one simple technique is to ask people the questions and let them
0: talk. I think it can also be a, themselves. be a bit more effective from somebody with a personal connection to that person. Right. And, and I think we all feel judged online. We've, we've covered that already um, earlier this evening, but um, I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't want the people that are my peers or professionals <laughs> that I look up to, to
2: be the ones asking me the questions. I'd rather talk to a stranger. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think it depends on the situations. I've also, you know, had a long, hard conversation with a friend who was a uh, intern for me. And, you know, he first learned about avalanche stuff with me and went on to become a professional. And I debriefed him on a fatal accident that he was involved in. And I think that was really hard for both of us. Um, But um, yeah, so it's not always, I would say it isn't always the case.
0: Sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger. All right, good. Spencer, any thoughts on that?
3: Uh, I'm just thinking back to some of the constructive criticism that Chris has given me, uh, and how impactful that can be. And I, I think that's, you know, there's a lot of those elements. There's, you know, the feedback coming from somebody you know and respect, but we can also be very empathetic and still provide very valuable feedback. Um, And sometimes that's easier to do when you're at a remove, sometimes that's easier to do when you know, the, the person and have a really tight connection.
0: Sure. You know, I, I, I spoke about the ripple effect from some of these accidents and, um, spanning a long time for, for a lot of these people. Um, and, and. I think that's something that we don't appreciate enough when we go out into the backcountry, and maybe we cut our margins a little bit too thin or we underestimate the hazard. And so I think it's, I think it's really an important place to start our day with is thinking about the people that care about you and the people that you care about and the people that you might not even know that, that might be affected by the consequences of your actions in the backcountry, And, and there have been several accounts within the volume of this snowy torrents where rescue workers were injured in a rescue. And I think a lot of times we don't think about that. Um, you know, nobody, nobody starts their day out and says, I'm going to go get caught in an avalanche today. Right. Like, or I've never met anybody that starts their day out like that. So, um, I think, I think that's an important thing to bring into this conversation is how your actions can affect other people and put other people in physical danger. Right. And, and, um, we all love to be out there, but, but, uh, is that a theme that, that you all recognize throughout this volume at all?
3: I think that's a, an easy theme to talk about and something we should really encourage people to do, but, we know from lots and lots of decision-making studies that when we're actually making decisions or in the moment, those aren't the factors that we're going to consider. But I really like the way you you framed it as something to start the day with, Caleb. And when you're making those plans, just keep that kind of idea in the back of your mind or make it very explicit in your trip planning. Sure. Emma,
0: you got any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's I, like Spencer said, I, I do really like this idea of starting the day with almost a meditation on that. I think, um, you know, if you go through this volume, there are, it's, there's so many incidents that you can almost, you can almost see and hear how much fun the victims were having until, right up until they weren't, right? Like right up until things have really gone off the rails. Um, so, you know, I think about, and things like kids sledding, right. Or, um, there's one with a couple, a couple young guys and I think it's Christmas day or the maybe Christmas Eve. And they're, um, they're like messing around on a hill, a hillside outside of Durango. And then they're suddenly caught in an avalanche. Right. And Luckily those guys survived but um man I just think about I think about that a lot um when I'm out and not that I would necessarily wish that on everybody to be so morbid as to be having thoughts like that while they're on a beautiful tour but I also think it's important right like I think about um you know if I'm out touring with some with good friends or with my spouse I'm like gosh, it would really change the course of the day in my life if there was an avalanche and something happened to one of us right now, right? And I think there's something, although it sounds kind of morbid, I think there is something really grounding about having those really concrete thoughts, like what would happen if things completely changed right now? Um, And, you know, I, I like the sort of gentler way that you're presenting it, Caleb, of like this starting the day with those intentions because you know we often talk about like you said earlier caleb um none of us knows anybody who wakes up and starts the day like i think i'm gonna go get avalanche today right like we don't know anyone like that but what if we took it to the opposite extreme right like i really like this idea of starting the day really thinking like what gives me the confidence to know that i'm not going to cause or be involved in an accident today and I like that idea of being really thoughtful about it and remembering that we're in this environment that isn't giving us feedback. And so how can we, how can we help control the narrative? Um, Yeah.
2: I'm struck in a number of these accounts. I was struck um, by the number of memoirs and um, survivors or people who lost someone wrote about, um, losing the person. And I think there's something, um, I don't want to say especially hard, but there's something hard about um, somebody leaving the house excited and casually to go play and then not coming home. And I think that makes for a lot of, um, makes it r- the grieving really hard for people. And I think, it's not just starting the day with that intention, but I think it would be useful for all of us to have those conversations um, long before we leave the house, and just talk about that because
0: a lot of these accidents leave really big holes in lives. Blaze, do you ever utilize the the concept of a pre-mortem? Maybe before you before you enter avalanche train like do you do you go through the kind of what the accident report would read like in your head
2: yeah i think to myself wow do i really want to be the bonehead that gets caught in that terrain trap and shuts down the backcountry avalanche forecasting program in this country
3: (laughs) What, what will they write about me
2: Oh, yeah. What will Spencer say? Um, Emma? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I go through that all the time. Um, yeah. No, I think the pre-mortem is a great technique. There's some really good podcasts and articles about that um, out there. Um, I, I mean, there's lighthearted pre-mortems like that, but yeah, I think that's useful. Um,
3: and Emma was talking about kind of, uh making this a a ritual and i make it very concrete the zipper pull on my avalanche airbag trigger is a little beaded uh dongle that my kids made so every time i'm opening that up there's this really physical reminder of what i'm doing and what i have done um and just to bring this back a little bit more lighthearted um, emma was talking about those two guys who were caught in durango Um, One of them wrote a memoir that was published in the National Enquirer about being late for Christmas dinner because he was caught and buried in an avalanche. Wow. In the National Enquirer, huh? Yes. Wow.
2: Yeah, I think it was titled something like, sorry, I was late for a Christmas dinner. And um, because they were caught and they weren't tumbled. They just got hit from above. So they were basically just sitting there and they could hear each other and they could hear people walking by on the street and they had air spaces it went on for 8 hours that there's something like that that they're actually buried um somewhere between Durango and uh Fort Lewis College yeah right on the um, side
3: of a main road in Durango
2: r- and finally somehow they managed to make enough noise that somebody heard them and um So yes, they then wrote, one of them then wrote an article for the National Enquirer mom or something like, I'm sorry, I'm late for Christmas dinner. So
0: yeah, we didn't get to talk to those guys, but that would have been pretty good. So another audience question here, Kevin from Boise, uh, who's a big fan of Emma's book, Dead Reckoning. Um, And so he's looking forward to reading the Snowy Torrance as well. He's wondering how everybody feels about uh, heuristic factors how they've evolved since the events described in this volume, uh, given that avalanche education seems to be much more readily available to backcountry users. I mean, there's certainly much more uh, talk about heuristic factors these days. Um, do you think that that has an impact on reducing avalanche accidents in the present day?
3: Uh, first of all, we have to figure out what we mean by heuristics. Um, You can go to Wikipedia, and I believe there's currently a list of over 130 heuristic factors. Um, So heuristics are, uh, from a psychological perspective, are simply a shortcut process that we use. Um, We see it used a lot kind of in the avalanche space as if these heuristics are problems. And that term kind of gets thrown out as, oh, they made a heuristic mistake. And I think what we're really trying to say is that somebody uh, in a lot of cases somebody used a pattern of behavior and decision making that they'd used in the past that worked and it didn't in this case.
0: In a different context or in a different in different conditions perhaps. <clears throat>
2: Yeah, I think that the there's some really interesting studies and work being done on redefining what we mean by heuristics. I mean, we talk about familiarity. The classic example is, well, what counts as familiarity? One time on the slope, a hundred, and and so um, and I think Dr. Sarah Boylan gave a talk at Utah um, that talks about uh, looks at some of this newer thinking about heuristics, and I would recommend that to folks. And there's also some research being done out of um, MSU and some folks in Norway looking at this. I think the one thing to keep in mind when we talk about heuristics is um, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, Thinking Slow and was the Nobel Prize winning researcher that has really changed our paradigm of how human beings make decisions. Um, you would think that he would be like, oh yeah, I got this stuff studied. I got it on lockdown. I'm, you know, I'm never going to make one of those. And if you read a section of that book, he talks about how it's a certain sense of hopelessness because he's like, I am utterly not immune to these and I can't see where anybody is immune to these um, cognitive traps, biases, inappropriate use of heuristics or misappropriate, Mistimed timed or misplaced heuristics. And I think that's, um, you know, the, the lesson to take from that is that we're all susceptible to them no matter how much training we have. Um, and, um, it's good to be able to think or understand that we're irrational creatures that make decisions, um, on the color of the car and not whether it's actually going to save us any money. um, and so on and so forth. Um, and that on any given day, any one of us, Spencer or me, or anyone could make a decision and wind up in a future volume of snowy torrents. And because of things that we might call heuristics or heuristic traps.
1: Yeah. I also think, you know, there was a bit of a pause after Caleb asked us Kevin's question. And I think that's one, because when you ask a bunch of avalanche professionals about heuristics, we all can't help ourselves about like jumping in to define heuristics. And two, I think it's really hard to come up with a nice soundbite for a question like this, right? Like it's, I think especially for the three of us who have been so deep in in these accidents for a long time now, it's hard to come up with something that sounds nicer than like, I don't know, hard to say. People keep dying and the causes seem to be the same, right? Like I think we've had that conversation a lot. And I know, like, Jill Fredston, who wrote the foreword for this book, um, that's something that has really troubled her over the last decades that has really, really been hard to see accidents that seem to have the same causes. And so it's hard not to get jaded, I think. And I think that, you know, if there is a bit of a pause, I guess I can only speak for myself, but it's kind of hard not to it's kind of hard to stay positive um, in the face of that. One thing I will say that gives me a little bit of uh, a little bit of hope. I'll try to be uh, a little more Miss Mary Sunshine than I usually am. Um, you know, there are still people dying in avalanche accidents, and the causes are really recognizable today, that last season, as they were in this volume. But there's a lot more people recreating in the backcountry than there were in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, right? So people are dying. But um, proportionally, you know, we've got like, Ari, who I work for, served 15,000 students two years ago, that's a lot of people who are getting into the backcountry, and that's just a small slice, right? So, we've got, you know, probably tens of thousands of people out there recreating across North America, um, and unfortunately, some of them are still being involved in avalanche accidents. But proportionally, um, you know, there's a lot fewer than maybe there were um, in the time that these this volume was written, right? And so, um, I'm I'll let Spencer. I'll let Spencer do the numbers I'm just gonna kind of say just kind of say some thoughts that I have but um but I do think that does give me hope that a lot of people are getting education and choosing to educate themselves by not just taking classes but also by things like reading the snowy torrents and choosing to engage with their communities after an accident so that gives me some hope that although some of these things haven't gone away despite the time that's elapsed um We are maybe making chipping away and making a little bit of progress.
3: And, you know, Jill Fredston and Doug Fessler wrote the first edition of Snow Sense, I think in the late 80s. And their human factors that they identified then are very similar to the human factors or the heuristic traps that we talk about now. Um, Kahneman and Tversky did their Nobel Prize winning research in the 70s. And, you know, in the 50 years since then, we have a much better understanding of how the brain works, how we make decisions at a, you know, down to the biochemical level. But those patterns that Kahneman talks about are still really applicable. So, you know, I think that the nuances and how we understand heuristics and what we mean by decision making Improves quite a bit, even if we're see, be, even if we're still looking at the same patterns or the same kind of mistakes, because we're still looking at fatal accidents. We're looking at a series of events that had a very similar outcome. So it's not surprising that we see similar inputs into that.
2: Emma said that there isn't really a way to be a soundbite. And I guess I've been thinking about that. And here's my attempt at a soundbite based on what Spencer just said and what we know about learning and Kahneman's despair is that, you know, we're never going to be immune from irrational decisions that aren't, um, we're never going to be immune from heuristic traps or cognitive biases or all the other things. And we can't train ourselves out of those what we can do is guard against them every time we're out in the back country. And that doesn't mean our guard will be perfect, but that's the best we can do. We can understand them, recognize them and try and guard against them,
0: but we're never going to train our way out of them. Do, do you think it's helpful just to, to mention those as, as things come up throughout your day in the back country, right? Like to like create that dialogue with your partners that, I mean, maybe your partners don't want that, but, but I think it could be helpful just to point those things out. And and I often do that like, Hey, we're kind of getting sucked into familiarity here. Um, maybe conditions are a little bit more hazardous and we feel okay with it because we come here every week or this is our avalanche control route at the ski area or or whatever. That's
2: guarding Mm. against it, right? I mean, I think that's one way to do it is you're trying to name it and recognize it. And you're not saying it's an absolute, we can flip a switch, but you're starting to ask that question. Are we somehow misjudging conditions because they're outside of our frame of reference? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a great question in that case. So I think that is how you guard against them is talking about them.
0: Um, well, we're going to, we're going to kind of put a wrap on the, the evening here. So if you have any lingering questions, please drop them in the chat. But while I still have everybody's attention, we want to make sure to make sure that, you know, you can find this great book on Amazon. It's only $27 and, and it would make a great holiday gift for the backcountry, uh, touring partner in your life. Um, and this book was really made possible, as I said before, through the partnership with the American Avalanche Association and the CAIC. So it couldn't have been, it couldn't have been put together without their support. Um, and we will, there's a link to purchase that book in the chat right now. So you can get that on there. If you're listening, um, post live session to this, we'll put a link in the show notes there. Um, I'd also like to, to throw out a big thank you to Janie Nolan for putting this together and and supporting us in this venture, as well as Cameron Griffin, who's helping out with some production work for this. So thank you both very much for, for this opportunity and your support.
2: Uh, for those that, um, might be loath to purchase a book from a massive operation, I would like to point out that the print on demand, Um, A capacity that uh, is available at Amazon is the only way we're able to bring this book to press um, and make it available in any kind of economical way in today's um, economic climate. So it wouldn't exist if it wasn't there.
0: I have a short question, Caleb, this sort of like touches on, um, the earlier subject of just all of the deaths and I don't mean to bring it down again, but maybe this will help bring it up. Um, what have some of you, like maybe just some short, like answers to like, what have you done to sort of mitigate the stress that has been put on you from writing this? Like, what do you do personally to sometimes do this other than obviously probably going out and touring and getting back to that?
3: Well, we know black humor, uh, grim jokes are very effective.
2: There's one accident report that I kept thinking somebody was going to edit my black humor out of, and they never did. And then I was rereading some of Spencer's, and um, there's some black humor in there. (laughs) Um, I think that's part of it. Um, I don't know. It's a tough subject. Uh, It's one reason that we're not rushing to do another one of these.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, I, I also think that there is, um, I think there, this is mentioned sort of abstractly throughout the text, but I think it's also important to enjoy the time that we do have, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, each of the authors has written about this a little bit and I wrote about it a little in the preface, but man, there are these incredible moments of like, wow, I can't believe this bluebird day that we got or... Um, just like stopping and looking around and seeing what's around you. And I think that really choosing to appreciate those moments and remembering why we're all doing this, um, was really important. And I think there were days throughout this process that, um, I would be trying to do some of the cat herding and, um, would get like a, a polite, um, but abrupt text from one of the authors that was like, I'm skiing today. so. My phone will be off. And that was a good reminder to me that like, maybe I should turn my phone off and go skiing too. Um, and there are, there's a reason that, that we're all involved in this world still, despite some of the sadness and darkness. And so I think choosing to appreciate that also has really gone a long way for me personally. That and talking about the dogs and And the dogs, God, the dogs always that actually scratch everything I just said. I think it's just some good dog time.
0: So we got another great question from Ed. Um, Ed says, as a firefighter, there's a national close call reporting system that we can get firsthand experiences that can be shared. Is there a way that can be done in the avalanche community? Um, Chris just posted the org, and then also avalancheworkersafety.org that, um, you know, reports can go in from avalanche workers that can anonymously submit and view those reports for from near misses. Um, I think it's, a, as a former wildland firefighter, I found it to be a, a super, uh, helpful system, the SafeCom SafeNet safe net system that's, that's been put in place there. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of work has been done with avalanche near miss and avalanche worker safety. I, I think it's, um, maybe a bit underutilized within our community. Um, any, any of you have any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm really glad that you and Chris mentioned those sites because they are so important. And, you know, as an avalanche community, we are starting to incorporate stress management and uh, stress resiliency skills that have been developed in the, you know, military, the EMS world and bringing them into our industry and making sure that we have those outlets so that we understand as a profession, what it's like to read hundreds of accident reports or go out and do these investigations in the field or talk to the survivors the day after.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I'd encourage everybody involved in this community to continue to report their near misses, their observations, and any accidents to to their local avalanche center, but also utilizing avalanche near miss and avalancheworkersafety.org. Um, it could help save somebody else's life. So uh, I think we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to our community to do so. Yeah. Well, I'd like to uh, put a wrap on the evening here. I'd like to first off thank our wonderful guests, Emma, Blaze Spencer. Thank you for, um, not only coming on the podcast this evening but for all of the work that you've done to create this great volume of the snowy torrents um, and i hope anybody listening will pick up a copy and learn from the the uh, learn from these accidents learn from our collective community it's really what i believe most in within our community is our ability to learn from each other and, and um, help to try and keep each other a little bit more safe out there, Um, or at least help us manage our risk a little bit better. So um, thank you all. Thanks to Cameron. Thanks to Janie uh, for helping to put this on this evening. And thanks to everybody listening. We appreciate you. Um, Any final comments from the, from the guests here? Nothing but smiles. It looks like
1: Thanks so much for having us, Caleb. Uh, Of
3: course. It was lots of fun to be able to get together with all three of us. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Sure. Agreed. Everybody have a a fun, safe winter out there, and we'll see you on the next one. Cheers. Well, we hope you enjoyed that discussion, and thanks to everybody who was able to stop by for the live recording and ask some great questions. Uh, That was a super fun event and I hope to do more of these in the future. We're gonna be putting out some bonus episodes. This was a bonus episode. Um, The next episode that's coming out will be on December 22nd, and that's featuring Anna Keeling, hosted by Sean Zimmerman Wall. Really excited to get that conversation out to you, and I know you're gonna enjoy it. And then um, on December 27th, I'm gonna highlight a, a great interview that I just conducted with the folks at Propagation Labs and talk about their new Snowscope and Snowscope app that I think is going to be super helpful for not only forecasting and operational use, but also uh, the Snowscope app is super cool for taking on-the-fly snowpack observations in the field. Um, And so uh, excited to push that one out on the 27th. And then, of course, we'll we'll have another episode coming out on the first of the year. Throughout this season of giving, please consider making a donation to your local avalanche center and or the American Avalanche Association. The American Avalanche Association is undergoing a fundraising drive right now. That uh, their goal of raising ten thousand dollars is will be matched if they reach that goal by a generous anonymous donor. Um, and so right now, as of recording this, they're about at 87% of their goal of $10,000. So let's help drive that up and help them reach their goal um, so they can obtain that, that matching donation. You can go to Avalanche org to find out more. Music on today's episode was provided by Ketza. you can find more of their work at ketsa.uk and of course the tracks were used with permission from the artist Our artwork was created by mike t you demand t you can check out more of his work at mike t.com m-i-k-e-t-e-a.com don't forget to follow us on the socials we're at the avalanche Hour podcast on facebook and instagram if you're enjoying the show make sure you subscribe to it And give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It does really help out. And don't forget to tell a friend. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.